0: All right, Hosea chapter 9, Hosea chapter 9. Uh, the last couple of weeks we looked at chapter 8, and in that chapter the Lord was uh, sort of summing up His complaint against Israel. And we've had that all through this book, of course. So at the beginning of the book we had the picture of Hosea and Gomer, and Gomer was the unfaithful wife that pictures unfaithful Israel. And in that 8th chapter we had a lot of things that talked about exactly why God was bringing judgment. Then in chapter 9, especially in the first part of the chapter, he begins to detail exactly what the judgment will be. And then we have some other things in this chapter too. Down around the middle of the chapter we have, uh, well, sort of Hosea's own complaint (laughs) against Israel, if you want to have that, as his position as the prophet and the lack of respect he received in that office. And then in the second half of the chapter we have... uh, three particular incidents in the history of Israel that God points out as things that led the nation to the state that it's in now, where it's about to go into captivity. But we'll start here at the beginning and look at some of the particulars of the judgment that God is going to bring on His people. And the first one is right at the beginning of the very first verse, that they're not going to have joy for a while. It says, Rejoice not, O Israel, for joy as other people. For thou hast gone a-whoring from thy God, thou hast loved a reward upon every corn floor. And so he says, because they have not been obedient to Him and haven't worshipped Him as they should, they are not going to have joy. It says they have gone a-whoring from thy God and loved a reward upon every corn floor. And uh, when it talks about a corn floor, what that is is a place where you would be threshing. And uh, usually in the Old Testament, when it uses the word corn, well, I think always when it uses the word corn, it's not talking about corn like we think of in the United States because they didn't have that. Uh, corn would have, been a, a, would have been a word that was used for really any sort of grain, but especially for wheat. <coughs> and if you had wheat, you had to thresh wheat. It had a, a hull on the wheat that had to be gotten off for it to be any good. And normally the way that would be done, this is something that actually will come up more in the next chapter in a very interesting illustration there but you would have uh trained animals heifers is what it mentions in the next chapter that would be used for this job sometimes they used oxen but uh you would have them walk around on it and just walking on that you'd have a sort of a flat floor that was paved with some kind of stones and you put it all out there and just let the the cattle tread around on it and that would separate it out and uh, you'd usually have it up on top of a hill or a knoll if you could, and the, the wind would blow the chaff away and leave you with the grain. Uh, you remember Gideon famously was threshing corn in a wine press because he was scared of the Midianites, you know. That wouldn't normally be where you did that. That's where you did it if you were scared and you were trying to just get out enough to keep yourself alive. Normally you'd do it up on top of a hill in sight of everybody. But that's what a corn floor was. And it says they have loved or reward upon every corn floor. Now, Uh, part of the backdrop of that is that in some of the idol cultures evidently, or some of the the pagan cultures, they would have an idol there on or near the corn floor uh, because they believed that it was that God that had provided the grain for them and was giving them their prosperity. And uh, they thought that by having that idol there to recognize the threshing of the corn, they'd offer some of that corn to the idol that the God would be pleased. Now evidently Israel had picked up on that practice. And so when they ought to have been worshiping God for the harvest that comes in, and remember, um, a number of the feasts that God had commanded Israel to celebrate were involved with harvest in one way or another. They had the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Pentecost, and uh, then at the end of the year, at the end of the summer, the Feast of uh, Tabernacles even was a sort of a celebration of the end of the harvest. But instead of keeping those feasts, they are keeping... Uh, a sort of a celebration for the idol gods, and the idea there is that, and I've mentioned this here before, they they seem to think that they were maybe going to hedge their bets. You know that uh, if God wouldn't provide them all the corn they wanted, well they'd go they'd diversify. You know and get themselves involved with another god too, and just worship all the gods they could so that whatever God was going to give them the corn would provide the corn. And what God says is they're being unfaithful. They're looking for someone other than himself to provide for them, and of course, that's the uh, that's the overarching image of the whole book, right? Is Gomer, who was uh, wife of whoredoms and betrayed Hosea, and went off and found lovers who would give her flashy things for uh, for her attention, and so that's what he says the people have done. They've gone whoring from thy God, and they've loved a reward upon every corn floor. They've been following after idols to get their corn. And it's interesting what he says here. He tells them not to rejoice as other people. Now what that tells us, and this is a very important principle in the Bible, that if God has given you more revelation, more is expected of you. Some of these other nations disobeyed God and He let them go ahead and have their joy. There were times of ignorance that He winked at doesn't mean he was pleased with them, and in the end those nations received their judgment too. But he didn't hold them to the same, same standard to which he held his people of his covenant. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If you have a spouse, you can look around at another man or woman and you could be irritated with them or aggravated with them if they do things that are wrong, but it's not nearly as bad as if it's your own spouse, right? <laughs> if you have entered into that covenant relationship with them, it's a great deal more serious if they're not keeping the covenant, right? You you can look at another person who's unfaithful to their husband or unfaithful to their wife, and you, you might be upset with them, but it's not the same level of grief as it would be if it were your own. And so he says, I'm holding you to a higher standard. That's what he's telling them. All these other nations were looking for a reward upon every corn floor too, but they weren't in covenant with Jehovah. And so He doesn't treat them in the same way He treats His own people. Now, that is for good and for ill. He holds them to this higher standard, but also, and after this long, dark section we've been in here for a month or two now, toward the end of chapter 11, we're going to start to see the light again. So I'm up here, to i go ahead and tell you that now, in case anybody is getting so depressed they can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. But (laughs) we'll try to hurry and get there as quick as we can. But uh, we come to the 8th verse of that chapter, and it says, How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? That's one of the most beautiful things in the whole book, really. Because they are His. He won't give them up. He will not give them up. It is. It's it's such a picture of grace. There's so many beautiful, poignant phrases in this this book. Yeah, Hosea is quite a writer. <laughs> he really is and, and and I we know of course everything in the scripture is given by the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit did work through the personalities of different people and you see different styles of writing in different books and Hosea is a very very witty and very poetic sort of writer. There are a lot of memorable passages in this book. And that's one of them where he says, "How shall I give thee up, uh, Ephraim?" Because in the end, He can never give them up. They are His covenant people. They're held to a higher standard, but the reverse side of that is that He loves them like He loved no other people. And what a blessed thing that is. Well, He goes on the second thing here in verse 2, is that the floor and the wine press shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail in her. So, first verse, they're going to lose their joy. Second verse, they're going to have famine. They're not going to have food to eat. He's not going to bless them with prosperity from their floor and their wine press. They've gone after other gods to try to get that. And uh, he says, if you want to lean on those other gods, what was the expression we had last week that their their calf had cast them off? (laughs) He said, you want to ride the calf, it'll buck you. And (laughs) you'll find that it won't carry you in the end. And then the third thing in verse 3, it says, they shall not dwell in the Lord's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt and shall eat unclean things in Assyria. Now, we saw that last week. He'd mentioned about how he would return them to Egypt. And uh, there's, there's sort of a double meaning in that, I think. The nation as a whole was not going to return physically to Egypt. Uh, now, we know some in the southern kingdom did flee to Egypt, and Jeremiah got mixed up in that whole thing and dragged down to Egypt with them. But the northern kingdom actually got taken to Assyria, and the the greater meaning of that is sort of a representative thing, that God had called them out of bondage in Egypt, now they're going to be taken back into bondage, and Egypt represents bondage. But the other meaning that I think it probably carries with it is that when the Assyrians come, there's coming a time when the nation of Israel was going to try to turn to Egypt for help. And we saw that a little bit in the last chapter, didn't we? How they had turned to other nations for their help instead of turning to God. And uh, I, I want to turn here um, uh, here to Second Kings, chapter seventeen. And that chapter tells me tells the last the story of the last king of Israel of the Northern Kingdom. And we may need to make that clear. When I say the last king of Israel, I'm talking about the Northern Kingdom. There were kings of Judah after this. The last king of Israel, interestingly enough, was a man named Hosea, which is the same name as Hosea. It's just pronounced a little different, but it's essentially the same name. And the name means salvation. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a strong linguistic connection between Hosea and Hosea and Joshua, and all of those names are actually connected with the name Jesus in the New Testament. We looked at that, I think, when we looked at the book of Hebrews, that there's... There's one place in the book of Hebrews where it talks about Jesus, and it's not Jesus Christ. It's Joshua mm-hmm. in the Old Testament. You have, to, you have to understand that or that passage won't be clear because it talks about how uh, Jesus didn't give him rest, right? And so that, that's very confusing if you don't know that it's talking about Joshua in the Old Testament. But uh, it's an interesting thing to have this, this name that refers to salvation used here because it becomes a picture of true and false messiahs. Right? Because this man Hosea, he's, he's, he's the last king, and you would think that he would be the one who would provide salvation for them. He becomes king uh, after, well, there's this whole complicated history of a series of uh, palace coups and so on, and uh, his claim to the kingdom is not all that great to begin with. But he, he does something that gets him in trouble, Uh, Some of the earlier kings of Israel had paid tribute money to Assyria to keep from being conquered, which was normally what you did if you had a small kingdom at that time that wasn't capable of fighting. Uh, 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 there There are a number of cases in history where empires like that would prefer to force someone to pay tribute money rather than actually occupy the place, because it's complicated to occupy. It's expensive. It takes a lot of people and uh it would be it would be easier in some circumstances just to force them to pay protection money and that's sort of the deal you make with them is that I'll protect you from Me. from uh, from other enemies and and uh that's a nice cornfield you got there and it'd be a shame if anything happened to it right you know so so you better pay the protection money and uh, it's it's exactly the same principle there there's there's an old theory and I don't think it's entirely true but there's something to it that that all the monarchy is is just a protection racket that hung around long enough to acquire an air of legitimacy, <laughs> and that's that's not entirely untrue in history. Anyway, uh, the thing about Hosea is he refuses to pay the tribute money to Assyria, and the motivation for that is not entirely clear. It may be that it's just too expensive. Maybe he was very brave. Maybe he was a fool, right? <laughs> but he turns to Egypt because that's the thing he thinks maybe maybe he thinks he can get a better deal. Egypt is still pretty powerful, but not as powerful as Assyria at that point. But maybe maybe they're cheaper, right? And uh, this thing still goes on in the modern world. I mean, we've we've got the major powers in this world: the United States and Russia and China and so on are are all making their bids for <laughs> other countries to try to have their involvement with them to be able to leverage their power. Anyway, he turns to the king of Egypt there in chapter 17 verse 4 of Second Kings, and the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt and brought no present to the king of Assyria. They call it a present. <laughs> which, is, which is a lovely way to put it. As he had done year by year, therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. You see he had <laughs> He'd been sending out feelers to Egypt to see if he could get any help. Yeah, they found out what he was doing. Uh, he, he didn't have a good intelligence arm, apparently. Intelligence network wasn't very good. But anyway, that may be uh, a part of what Hosea is, ref- is referencing when he says they'll return to Egypt. Because one of the things that God had commanded them to do when they left Egypt was that they were never to turn to Egypt for anything really. They they weren't supposed to get horses from there or women from there or military help from there or anything because Egypt was a thing that was supposed to be left behind. It is in the Old Testament a type or a picture of the world Mm -hmm. and the bondage of the world that we as Christians are supposed to leave behind when we're saved. We're not supposed to ever turn back to that for anything. And uh, so that may be part of what Hosea says. He's a very witty man. (laughs) you know, and, And that may be sort of what he's referencing there in a sort of a veiled way that they were going to turn back to Egypt, but in the end they're going to eat unclean things in Assyria. That's what's going to happen. So that's the third thing. First was they would lose their joy. Second is famine would come upon them. The third what they would not dwell in the Lord's land that they're going to be carried away. The fourth thing is that they're not going to be able to offer sacrifice. And that's kind of an interesting thing. They had gone so long without offering sacrifice like they were supposed to that God's going to take away their ability to offer sacrifice. "...they shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord. Neither shall they be pleasing unto Him. Their sacrifices shall be unto them as the bread of mourners. All that eat thereof shall be polluted. For their bread for their souls shall not come into the house of the Lord." Now, we've talked about this before. They were offering sacrifices they weren't offering Him in the right way. Or maybe even more to the point, they're not even offering them in the right place. Because that was supposed to be done at Jerusalem. And that's in the southern kingdom. They don't go down there anymore. and uh, But they still continued the sacrificial system. And that's that, it, there's a real interesting study in that. We've touched on it a, a little bit already. But uh, there's an interesting study in the nature of religion and I mean religion in a negative way, with what goes on in the Northern Kingdom, because those people up there are sincerely believing that they're serving God, in spite of the fact that they're violating all of His commandments. They're offering sacrifices. They believe they're offering them to God. They're they're not, but they believe they are. And what he says is that all their sacrifices are going to be polluted. It says it's going to be as the bread of mourners. Now, that's an interesting expression, because... Uh, In the Old Testament, God had set forth pretty specific laws about uh, uncleanness that had to do with death. And pretty much anything that had been in the house of a person who had died or near them was unclean for seven days. So the bread of mourners was polluted bread. And he says that's what their bread's going to be like. The bread for their soul shall not come into the house of the Lord. Now if you remember in the temple, or in the tabernacle first, later in the temple, they had to bring on a weekly basis shoe bread into the temple, and it was called the bread of the presence sometimes. And uh, that was to be set before the Lord. There were um, two piles of six loaves. That's the way it was originally done back when all twelve tribes were together. How how they did it in the north, I'm not exactly sure or if they did it that way at all. There were probably with some vestige of it left over because they seemed to have retained bits and pieces of what was supposed to be done in the temple. But uh, that was to be put there before the Lord as an offering to Him and left in the holy place for a week, after which it would be eaten by the priests, and it was part of their nourishment. And sort of the background, behind, that's sort of the background behind this fourth verse. He says that your bread's going to be polluted bread. It won't be fit to offer in the house of the Lord. You won't be able to make a, an offering that the Lord will have any respect to, in other words. Because everything you bring will be as one who has died, and that tells you something about how he reckons their state of holiness doesn 't it because as seems as far as God is concerned that's they're dead spiritually mm-hmm. speaking, everything they bring is polluted, and he says in verse five, "What will ye do in the solemn day and in the day of the feast of the Lord now the uh, the religious state of the Northern Kingdom is so far gone at this point that it's, it's, it's hard to say exactly what that means, but the most likely candidate for that is that they had some vestige of the Day of Atonement left over that would be called the Solemn Day. Uh, that was, I've mentioned this here I think before, I, it is interesting by the way, that in the whole religious calendar that God gave Israel, there was only one day when they were supposed to afflict themselves before the Lord. And that was on the Day of Atonement. They had seven major events other than the Sabbath throughout the year. And uh, six of them were celebrations. They were feasts. They had one Day of Atonement when they were supposed to afflict themselves. And uh, later on they (laughs) invented a bunch more. We'll get to that when we get to the book of Zechariah. They invented a bunch of uh, fasts that troubled them. And (laughs) after they had invented them, they wanted to get out of them. Which is a thing that happens when you invent religious practices. Sooner or later, you want to get out of them. The ones that come from God are sweet and beautiful and precious, but the ones you make up on your own will become a misery to you after a while. But anyway, that probably is the background of the solemn day and the day of the feast of the Lord. Who knows? Maybe that's a vestige left over of Passover or something like that. But he says that's that's the point of this. He says, "What are you going to do on your holidays?" when everything you've got is polluted. Now, they haven't been offering at Jerusalem. They made their own temples, but what he's telling them now is, I'm going to drag you out of the land. If you won't come to the city where I told you to go, you're not going to be in the land at all. And then when are you? where are you going to offer? You won't offer it to your calf at Dan or Bethel or Samaria or wherever you want to put up a calf. And he says, what are you going to do then? What's your answer to this? Now, that is... An interesting question, by the way. It's one that the nation, that the Jewish people have had to answer as a whole since the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And frankly, they haven't answered it very well because there is no real answer to it. There is no place today for the Jews to offer the sacrifices that are required in the Old Testament. And the only solution to that problem is to accept that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all those sacrifices and accept Him. But what they've had to do instead, those Jewish people who haven't accepted Christ have had to uh, sort of spiritualize and allegorize the whole Old Testament and come up with religious ceremonies that are, frankly, not very good substitutes for the things that God had ordained. Anyway, he comes here to verse 6, and he starts to talk about the destruction that will come. For lo, they are gone because of destruction. Their place of worship is gone. Egypt shall gather them up. Memphis shall bury them. Memphis was the capital of Egypt then. We're not talking about Tennessee, alright? <laughs> that was, <laughs> the city in Tennessee was named for the city in Egypt. That was the capital of Egypt at that time. And, uh, that's sort of the idea there. If they're going to turn to Egypt for their help, Egypt will just be as bad as Assyria was. The pleasant places for their silver, nettles shall possess them, thorns shall be in their tabernacles. In other words, all their land and all their tabernacles, everything they used to worship will be grown up because they'll be moved out of the land and it'll just go to seed really and not be of any use for anything. Now verses 7 and 8 we turn to a little bit different subject and this is is a place in the book where Hosea gets to make his complaint (laughs) against the people and it's interesting because he, he never really gets to make a complaint against Gomer, right? You would imagine there would be some pent-up anger <laughs> there about the whole thing. But he was a man of tremendous grace that God had given him. He does get a, an opportunity here in these two verses to complain about how he's received in Israel. And uh, we need to say before we get into these verses that this is Hosea speaking in a, well, kind of a sarcastic way, really. He says, "...the days of visitation are come." In other words, judgment is here. This is when God is going to visit you with judgment. The days of recompense are come. That is, your judgment has fallen upon you. Israel shall know it. You're going to know what it is when it comes. There's not going to be any mistaking it when the Assyrians come down upon you. But he says, the prophet is a fool, the spiritual man is mad, for the multitude of thine iniquity and the great hatred. He said, all all you people that say the old prophet's a fool or that the spiritual man's crazy, the day's coming when you'll see he knew what he was talking about. He wasn't well treated in Israel. The prophets never were, <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, they hated him. They had a great hated, hatred for him, it says there. Maybe that's why they venerate Moses so much. He was the only prophet they actually
1: liked. Yeah, well, see,
0: the, there, there is... That's that's a really important point because that connects with something that I think is important in the age in which we live. Because the prophets during the time of apostasy are never popular. Right? The the prophets, when things are going well, are remembered well. Moses was the prophet who carries them up out of Egypt and parts the Red Sea and all like that. Now, lest we forget, Moses had times of unpopularity in his own life, right? But he's remembered well because he got him out of Egypt. That's right. That's, that's the issue. He, let me go ahead and read this 8th verse, and then I'll talk about that a little more. Because it says, The watchman of Ephraim was with my God. And Hosea seems to be referring to himself. He's the watchman. He's the only one standing on the tower watching, seeing what's coming, right? He's the one one sounding the warning when nobody else will. But the prophet is a snare of a fowler in all his ways. That's what they said about him. He said the prophet's just trying to catch you. And that's what people say about the preachers nowadays, aren't they? They're just trying to catch you, trying to get your money or something like that, trying to to get you caught up in something. And hatred in the house of his God said that old prophet, he's just a hateful old man and bigoted or whatever. He's trying to cause you all sorts of trouble. The prophets are never popular in the times of apostasy. It is unwise to try to be popular during the time of apostasy. And that is something that we need to understand in in the hour in which we live. Because we are living in an age of apostasy. It's important to know where you are <laughs> on the timeline, right? And this, these Old Testament prophets, these uh, minor prophets we're looking at here, and the other prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, especially Jeremiah and Ezekiel, were prophets in times of apostasy. They were not popular in their own time. People didn't like them. And This is an age of apostasy that we're living in now. It's important for us to understand that these these prophets, this is one of the reasons why we ought to study these prophets, because there are a lot of parallels between their age and the age in which we live. The Bible talks about in the book of 2 Thessalonians uh, a great falling away that was to come. And I've had people ask me a lot of times, when is that? Or, Or do you think that that we could be seeing the precursor of that, the beginning of that now? And my answer to that is, I don't think we're seeing the precursor. I think we're seeing the real thing. I think we're seeing the falling away. There is, there's some confusion about that because some people get the impression that the, the falling away is during the tribulation period. But the Scripture doesn't really say that. Uh, what the Scripture teaches is that the, the day of the Lord, which is actually talking about His second coming at the end of the tribulation, before that comes there has to be a falling away and, and the man of sin has to be revealed. So really all we have to say about that is that the falling away has to come before the man of sin is revealed. And uh, that doesn't necessarily mean before or after the rapture. It could very well be before now, and I would make the case that before the rapture is the better candidate because during the tribulation you'll have a false church on the earth, but how do you fall away from a false church? Mm-hmm. Right? The apostasy has to be or the falling away has to be from the real church, I think. And I think we're seeing that right now. Uh, and I, and I'm, I've talked about this some here before. I'm not going to belabor the whole thing right now. But we're seeing just in the last year or two people changing their doctrine that used to stand for sound doctrine. And I've never seen anything like it in, in my life. And I've been around church all my life. and I've never seen people changing their doctrine the way they are right now. And uh, that ought to warn us that we are in this age where if you preach the truth you're not going to be very popular. And I think that's something we've got to come to terms with in our churches and we've got to reckon with is that in this age you're going to have to choose between truth and popularity. For the most part you're not going to have both. It's going to be very difficult to have both anyway. Because When the judgment is coming, people don't want to hear about it. Now, uh, I get a little flack once in a while about things like this anyway, you know, about teaching on this sort of thing. And I don't think we can afford to apologize for it because it's truth people want to hear now. Now, we spent here a good long while talking about doctrine, and the end of that study we had on doctrine was on doctrine of prophecy or last things or end times. And we spent a good bit of time in Revelation. And uh, I noticed an interesting pattern. You know, we post these lessons on uh, Sermon Audio and uh, when we were talking about Revelation, the numbers of the audience started to grow because people are interested in that sort of thing. And they got up pretty good. And then we started talking about Hosea and they started to Fall off (laughs) to about half of what they were actually when we were talking about the book of Revelation. And that is, that's fascinating to me Mm -hmm. because what that tells me is that people are interested in the judgment in an abstract way as long as it's something that's not going to happen to them or not going to happen very soon. We can read about it in the book of Revelation, and if we can tell you that, you know, that you're a believer, you're not going to go through the tribulation, then, well, it's, it's interesting in the same sort of way, I guess, that people watch horror movies or something like that. But when it starts to become real, see, people, people will be very interested in the book of Revelation to know what is going to happen, but they don't want to hear about why it's going to happen. And in Revelation we talk about what's going to happen, but in Hosea and these other books we're talking a lot more about why it's going to happen. Now it's not exactly the same because he's talking to Israel in the Old Testament and about the judgment they were going to go into, but it's a lot of the same principles about why judgment is coming on the whole world. That's not popular. And uh, I knew that would happen <laughs> because I've seen this pattern before. It's not a surprise. But we don't stop teaching it because God told us to give the whole counsel of God. And I don't stop preaching on those sort of things. I, I've been preaching long enough now to know what sermons will be popular and what won't. And I know how, and this is <laughs> probably some people for me to say this, but I'll go ahead and say it anyway. There's enough people in this world that don't have very much discernment of the Holy Spirit that I can put together a sermon that I know will be popular and people want to come hear it. But it won't be right. And because I put it together. And you talk about something that'll make people mad and run people off, but tell them they don't have any spiritual discernment, you know. <laughs> but I know what I'm talking about. Uh, you, you know the things, you, you hang around church long enough, you know the things that get a response and you know the things that will get people excited. And you can do that if you want. But it's not right. And you have to, somewhere along the line, make up your mind which side you stand on. That's a form of deception. I'm It is. Can you imagine standing before God and how did you lead these people? Yeah. You calls them to go to hell because you didn't teach yeah. them the truth, the whole truth. It's a fearful thing to think about, to stand before God someday. And and listen, you, you we've looked at that passage in Matthew about all those people that would say, Lord, Lord, and they start to name off the works they did in his name. And wouldn't it be awful to get there before him and say, I preach and I got hundreds or thousands of people to come? And the Lord had to say, "I never knew you," because all you told them was, "Think positive thoughts," and God's going to give you everything you want and everything you're looking for. And He never told them about sin, and He never told them about judgment. So all of this. and you'd be and you'd be deceived yourself. I mean, you you'd actually there are people who will stand there and think they really did a great work for God. Like yeah. Like this, exactly like those people there when all they really did with something to promote themselves. And, you know, again, that's one of those places where every time I say things like that, I, I know there are people out there that are just gritting their teeth saying, man, you, <laughs> that's awful that you talk like that. But I don't say it to be mean or try to put anybody down. I, I say it because it's the truth. And we've reached that stage in this world where you've got to make up your mind whether you want to be true or whether you want to be popular. And you just have to make that choice. Now, I am aware that preaching and teaching the way I do, I'm never going to be tremendously popular. That's not going to happen in this world, right? Because that's not what the world wants. I, uh, I've mentioned, I may have even mentioned this last week. There's this passage in 2 Kings, um, in, um, 1 Kings rather. And, uh, it's such a, uh, <laughs> it's kind of a funny passage in a way. There in 1 Kings chapter 22, when, uh, Ahab and Jehoshaphat had made their uh, you. <laughs> yeah, had made their agreement to try to fight together and, and uh, Ahab you know, didn't want to hear from the Lord at all. He had all those false prophets that, that he wanted to hear from. And there in verse 5, 1 Kings 22, 5 said, Jehoshaphat said unto the king of Israel, inquire, I pray thee, at the word of the Lord today. Because Jehoshaphat was a godly man for the most part. He, he got himself allied with a king who wasn't very godly, but uh, that happens sometimes to godly people, uh, but he still wanted to hear from the Lord. So he, he asked the king of Israel to inquire at the word of the Lord. Now, speaking of people who didn't have much spiritual discernment, right? Yeah. Jehoshaphat was a man who wanted to please God, but he, any man who would ask Ahab to inquire at the word of, <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> you're leaning leaning on a broken reed. Okay, right? Yeah, that's right. You you can't expect ungodly people to give godly wisdom. But the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about four hundred men. And where he got these prophets is an interesting question. But there were a lot of them, <laughs> and said unto them, "Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear?" And they said, "Go up, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king." Jehoshaphat must have had a little discernment. <laughs> Because he says, is there not here a prophet of the Lord besides? (laughs) He looked around at the crowd (laughs) of prophets, right? And he says, wait a minute, you got 400 of them here, but I don't think they're prophets of the Lord. he wasn't quite as spiritual as what I thought. Yeah, uh, and I don't know who these prophets, I don't know if they were prophets of Baal or what they were. But he knew that they weren't prophets of the Lord. He could kind of tell to look at them, I guess. Or that maybe they just didn't smell right. You know, that, that'll, that'll happen if you're spiritually discerning sometimes. Something told him that that, yeah. that wasn't really, right. just like you, and, and see, you, know, you talk to him and you can say, oh, you're one of us. Yeah. You're a believer. You know, you, you may wonder if Jehoshaphat knew somewhere in his mind that the Lord wasn't actually going to win that battle for him. Jehoshaphat's an interesting character. That's a whole other study for another time. But, but I'm not going to go all the way down that rabbit trail. But, but uh, he says, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord besides that we might inquire of him? And the king of Israel said unto to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man, Micaiah the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. <laughs> for he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Listen to me, the false prophets had the true prophets num- outnumbered 400 to 1 down there. They, they told those people what they wanted yeah. to hear. Mm-hmm. He told him to, what he said, you think positive thoughts and live your best life now and everything will be alright. That's, That's exactly how it is. 100%, right? Yeah. I think about Elijah he was having a pity party. He's mm-hmm. like, I'm the only one left? Yeah. Yeah. It's just me. Nobody else, just me. And the Lord's like, listen here, son. He <laughs> said he's got those 7,000 out there. But, but uh, he says he just got this one and, and, and I hate him. Because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And that is so much the attitude of the world, isn't it? People don't want to hear the truth. They want to hear somebody tell them something to make them feel good. Make them feel like their situation's not so bad. I'm amazed sometimes by the, by the attitude people have about doctors even, for example. And people will choose a doctor based on their bedside manner. Instead. I don't care what they act like. I want to know if they know what they're talking about or not. <laughs> I don't want some doctor that's a quack and doesn't know what he's doing to sit there and tell me everything's going to be all right. <laughs> I don't care if he's rude or mean or hateful or whatever he is, as long as he tells the truth and knows what he's doing. And that's the way it ought to be with, um, with the Word of God. We ought to want to know what it really says and what we're really supposed to do. We ought to want to know what's really coming. Now listen to me. If judgment is coming, we at least ought to want to know about it because because there will be so many people who are eating up that feel-good stuff and judgment will roll down on them like a wave and they'll never see it coming because nobody ever told them. And uh, that's why we teach on things like this. Because that's a that's our responsibility it's not just a well thank you sir well thank you sir and that's 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 what our job is yeah that that is uh that is the responsibility of anybody who wants to give out the word of God anybody that mm-hmm. takes it upon themselves to teach or is called to preach is to give it out true and plain and uh that's what Hosea did. It didn't make him popular. You won't find that these minor prophets in general were very popular people. And you see why. <laughs> you know, We've been looking at it for a while. It's not it's not entertaining and it's not necessarily fun, but it's the truth we need to hear. And uh, so that's what he says about them. They said that he, he was just he's just a hateful man, <laughs> just a hateful old man out there talking about all the evil that's going to come. But you know what else he was? He was right. Yeah. <laughs> and time proved him right. You know, wouldn't you want, if you knew that the Chinese army was rolling down Broadway in New York, yeah. wouldn't you want someone to call and tell you? Yeah. 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 Hey, the Chinese have overtaken mm-hmm. New York. Or, yep. you know, the Russians are in Albuquerque or whatever. Or the zombies are going down Washington Street. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wouldn't you want to know? No, yeah. But, but you know. You have to say it if, if yeah. you say, you. Are doing something that's, yeah that's that's what that's, yeah. Convict, convict that's, that's the big problem more than anything else and the reason why this is so unpopular is because it hits people where they live. You can talk about the tribulation period to Christian people and they'll think, well I'm not going to be here it's just going to be all those awful people who never got saved that are going to have to endure all that and it's terrible but it's just like a movie <laughs> you know it, it doesn't fall on me. But when you call people to account for their own actions, that's never popular. It just never is. And these, this book of Hosea, of course, is not written to the church, and, and we understand those dispensational differences. It's written to Israel. But God is still God, and holiness is still holiness, and a great deal of what they had done, the church is guilty of today. Well, they turned the church into a place of entertainment. Yeah yeah, to live, yeah. To be entertained, you know. it to satisfy the flesh yes. and uh, that's uh that's a scary thing and you know that's, that's another one of those things that's really unpopular to talk about I've, I don't know if I was it here I mentioned that or somewhere else it's, it's funny how in uh, <laughs> these days we we have sometimes a habit of preachers will get up and say, "Now this is something really unpopular," and then we say something we know it actually is very popular with the people we're talking to. <laughs> it's unpopular with lost people, but but people say this is really unpopular, knowing they're going to get a lot of amens. You know, they're talking about yeah. homosexuality or drinking or whatever, and say this is unpopular, but it's popular with the people you're talking to. Now, the stuff that I'm talking about is genuinely unpopular, right? And, and you can tell when it's really unpopular because you don't get amens, you get quiet. <laughs> that's, that's when you know you've said something really unpopular. And yeah, yeah. And, uh, and you know when you've touched the third reel, You can always tell. <laughs> you know, sometimes we do that. But, but uh, those are the things that are most needful, right? For the most part, in the churches I preach in, now different preachers are called in different places and they have different audiences, but the the places where I'm called to preach, there's not a great deal of preaching about homosexuality because there aren't homosexuals in the churches where I'm preaching. It's not that that's not a wrong thing, it's just that if I'm preaching about that, usually I'm just preaching to the choir. you know. But in the churches where I preach, we have a lot more problems with things like pride and covetousness and And being uncharitable (laughs) and things like that. Those are the sins that we commit. And you don't get nearly as many amens talking about those kind of things, but those are needful things. Mm -hmm. And you might even make the case that, you know, in the places where I preach, they're more needful (laughs) because those are the things that are actually going on. And uh, so we, uh, you know, I mean, (laughs) you can get up there and talk all day about uh, homosexuality or people drinking or. People cussing or things like that or gambling. Well, in churches I preach in, most of the people don't do much of that. Okay? Right? But we gossip. (laughs) And that's not that popular to talk about. But that's, that's what I'm getting at is, you know, the, the, the prophet of God in, in the age when things are really going downhill are not going to be popular. And we might as well not expect to be. Uh, in our churches today. I think we've reached that point where we ought not expect that the world's going to love us. And he told us that if the world hated us, it hated him first. <laughs> right? So that's something that ought to give us some encouragement. Well, we don't have much time left. Let me maybe just introduce this last part of the chapter. There, there are uh, three historical events in the nation of Israel That are mentioned here in the rest of this chapter. And maybe I can just kind of give you a little outline of that and give you the references where they are so you can study them a little bit for next time. And then we'll get into some of the details about them. But in verse nine, it mentions the days of Gibeah. And that seems to be a reference to something we mentioned a week or two ago at the end of the book of Judges, the last three chapters, I think, of the book of Judges 19, 20, 21. There's an incident that occurred there where uh, the tribe of Benjamin had become so incredibly corrupt that the rest of the nation ends up declaring war on them. There's a particular incident. I'll save that for next week to talk about the details of that. But uh, they almost wiped out the tribe of Benjamin because of how incredibly wicked they had become. And uh, then in verse, uh, the next verse, verse 10... It talks about how they went to Baal Peor. And that's an incident that occurred near the time of the end of their wilderness wandering. It's all wrapped up with the talking donkey. Everybody remembers the talking donkey, right? And Balaam. And uh, Balaam, of course, wouldn't curse Israel. But he counseled the king, Balak, who wanted them cursed. And instead of cursing them, he just got the people of Israel to engage in fornication with the people of Baal Peor, those Moabites down there. And God had to bring judgment upon them. And uh, so that has to do with um, their drifting into false religion because it was idolatry. It was all mixed up in that too. And then in verse 15 it talks about the wickedness as in Gilgal. And that's an incident we incident that we talked on a little bit here a while back. We didn't maybe emphasize the location that much. But when Uh, King Saul offered the sacrifice he wasn't supposed to offer. It was in Gilgal. And so that has to do with the the kings rejecting the authority of God. So those three events together are pictured as um, kind of representative of everything that had gone wrong in Israel. The people had become deeply immoral. They had followed after idols in the religious realm. Their kings had become disobedient to God. And all those three three things together picture a nation that has just entirely turned away from God and was ripe for judgment. So, Lord willing, we'll talk about that next time. We'll just stop there for tonight, and um, we're getting closer and closer to the light at the end of the tunnel. So, just hang in there. <laughs> another, another chapter, and I have to go. All right. <laughs>